to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So today I am speaking with Krista Couture. I was introduced to by my friend Amanda Lytle of the Safe Haven podcast. Um, and she's a really close dear friend of mine. Hey, Amanda, I love you. <laughs> and uh, Krista, if you would, please introduce yourself to listeners. Sure. I'm Chris Couture. I'm a writer, musician, filmmaker, broadcaster based in Toronto. I am queer, disabled. I'm proudly mixed Cree and settler Scandinavian. And I'm a mom. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As I read your book, is it not a book about how to survive every fucking thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the title, How to Lose Everything is like, a bit tongue in cheek almost, because I think sometimes when I tell people about, um, what I call my grief bio, which, you know, in the context of this book is, um, cancer, amputation, death, death, divorce, more cancer. That was sort of my book outline (laughs) was like, I'm going to, you know, talk about these experiences that I've had, which is, you know, bone cancer. When I was a kid, the amputation of my, um, left leg above the knee as the cure for that cancer. And I was very lucky, of course, that there was a cure and it was, you know, a massive loss, a huge change. Um, the death of my first son, um, at, at one day old, the death of my second son at 14 months old, and then my marriage ending, you know, after that. And I sort of picked up, moved across the country to start over and got thyroid cancer, which put my career, my like 10 year career as a a singer songwriter on hold. And so I think sometimes when people see that like bullet list and we could all make a bullet list, right. Of these like moments in our life where everything changed, (laughs) we all have that. And so making the, the calling it how to lose everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's an exaggeration while they had these extraordinary losses there's ways, you know, I've always been housed. Um, I always had, you know, the means to sort of carry myself through these in some way, but I, at the same time, wanted to acknowledge that as a list, it is, it is an extraordinary collection of experiences. And I think sometimes people hear about even just one of those things, like, oh, you, you only have one leg, like, uh, what's that like? (laughs) Um, or, or wow, you lost two children. Like I can't imagine. And so this was a way for me to kind of answer those questions and maybe satisfy some of that curiosity and, and, but you're right. It's more about how to survive it with, it's more the stories of how I have moved through these experiences, how I've been changed by them and what that looked like for me. At the start of your story, your first introduction to losing someone. I mean, I think the first mention of losing someone was my uncle um, Mm -hmm. or my great uncle. And then as far as classmates, like once I had cancer and Mm -hmm. met other kids um, Mm -hmm. who were were Mm -hmm. dying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so at a very young age, you had this experience of losing, losing an uncle. And then during the process of of the, the, the cancer and, and losing your leg that had to be amputated, 
One of the things that really struck out to me in reading your story, though, is oftentimes when people lose someone, even if it's not to death, right, it's it's we're having these conversations of of so much suffering because of kind of failing to like honor or recognize the impermanence of all things. And as life would have it, you learn this lesson early that things come and things go. Yeah. But there was an early lesson. That's interesting. And I, I, you know, sometimes when people ask me about having cancer as a kid, I don't know what it's like not to. (laughs) Like, I wish I could sort of A, B test who I would be in this world without these, um, you know, really formative experiences. I was 11 when I first got cancer and my amputation was at age 13. And so I'd already been on chemotherapy and had radiation. I'd been in the hospital in another hospital for two years with other kids with cancer and, and many of those kids died. And so there I was undergoing the same treatments that they had that hadn't worked for them. And, And, and the one friend, you know, there's one friend, Amanda, who I became really close with. She had leukemia and she died. And, you know, we saw each other outside of the hospital. We played Nintendo. We had sleepovers on her waterbed, you know, (laughs) late eighties. And, uh, and, I, I think it really shaped me for better or for worse. I think I had a sense I had a sense of why me for a long time or why not me? Like, why did I survive a kind of survivor guilt. Um, there is nothing more special about me than those other kids, but I'm the one who, who made it through. And I, I carried a kind of heaviness of that for a long time and moved forward in this way. I think by the time I was kind of out of the hospital and back in high school around other 14, 15 year olds, they were not thinking about death. (laughs) That was not in their, you know, experience. And I felt so aware of something, this could end, something terrible could happen. I felt it kind of implanted a sort of impatience in me is in some way these, I don't know if it's the negative expression of that, but like, I felt a sort of like, I need, I need to hurry up. I want to have experiences. I want to see things because what if I don't have much time? Um, And then as an adult, the kind of expression of that is more of like an appreciation for what we have. And, um, that, that sense of knowing, like you said, the impermanence doesn't feel sort of as threatening. (laughs) Um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I don't know how I would, who I would be without that kind of awareness of death and the way that it shaped me. And it's interesting because by the time I had my sons and they died, I think even I was already so impacted by by death and already so aware of, of people dying young in particular. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people want to know, how did you get over it? How did you get through it? And I know for people that I work with who are going through the grief process, it's not a good question, but how did, how did you respond to that? I have been asked that where people look at me like I'm some kind of anomaly, which of course I'm not, <laughs> right? Finding some way to take that next breath. And when people ask the question that way, I feel quite othered. I feel like, what if I am, what if there's, I feel like there's almost something wrong with me. Like I shouldn't be okay. (laughs) You know? And when I talk about this and I also feel like sometimes it's putting the um, emphasis on the individual. I know from my experience and what I see that resilience or survival is contextual and it has to do with resources and our social location. And I had someone say to me once, like, you know, I wouldn't be like, you're not, a, you, you could be a heroin addict, but you're not. 
and it was kind of glib, but they were recognizing that like addiction would be a reasonable response, right? Mm-hmm. Like drug use can be like a, a reasonable support for people who mm-hmm. can't, aren't coping. And I yeah. happened to have other supports and other resources. And that's mm-hmm. not because I individually had this like inner strength and power. And that's not to diminish my spirit or my choices, but it's to recognize all of the things that were around me that got me through it, you know, and having support and having resources. And even in my social location, like, yes, as a queer indigenous person, but white presenting cis lived in a major, you know, city in, in the Western world, like there was ways that I had access to supports. So like for like, when people ask me that question, they're kind of looking at me in isolation and, and that's not how this works, you know? Mm -hmm. I love that you are able to, to, to name your privilege. And, And there is a lot of othering sometimes in the questions that that people ask of of those of us who have survived, you know, certain things. I also wanted to ask you, was therapy support groups, uh, grief rituals or ceremonies um, ever a part of your your healing process? Yeah, therapy, absolutely. I feel very fortunate. Again, it's a resource that not everyone can access. Mm -hmm. And I feel very, very fortunate that I was able to, Um, there was one therapist in particular, her name's Michelle Cambolis. She just published her second book. It's called when women rise. Mm -hmm. I don't work with her directly anymore, but for years I did. And I credit her as being one of the major forces that got me through it. (laughs) Uh, in particular, like she works with EMDR. I found that like modality really supportive when it came to the like more traumatic memories. And this is more specifically around the, like the losses of my sons, as mm-hmm. you know, once you're in therapy, one thing leads to a whole bunch of mm-hmm. other things, right? So mm-hmm. we started talking about my sons and then all, everything else comes in. And so, and since working with her, I've had another, I have a current like therapeutic relationship with someone here in Toronto that is also so supportive. And I really, um, have been helped by, I talk about in the book, uh, for a couple of years, I went to a support group for bereaved parents at um, a children's hospice respite care place in Vancouver called the Canuck House, Canuck Place. Uh, that was that was really helpful too. You know, it had its time and place um, where hearing other parents um, talk about their experiences was really, you know, we just were talking about feeling othered. You know, when you find people going through something else and that sense of like, okay, it's not just me <laughs> um, was was really helpful. And grief ceremonies, yeah, over time they've shifted. And over time I have found the different ways that I want to honor, you know, different anniversaries or moments in time. And even over time, I think for a while I felt like, um, particularly with my sons on their birthdays or the anniversaries of their death, uh, their deaths that like, there should be the right thing that I do. There should be a certain ritual that I, I do every year and it should look a certain way. <laughs> and finally someone was like, there, you don't, there is no should here. You know, you could just lie in bed all day. That would be fine. And so kind of finding, finding my own, you know, approach with that, because of course those rituals are for me, it's just me. And so um, it took me time to figure out what I wanted out of those, but yeah, I've been helped by, by all of those things. I love that, that recognizing that it doesn't have to be a specific way that other people have done it on those anniversary dates or, or on any date, you can really simply ask yourself, what do I need today? Yes. How do I honor myself today? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. What would be soothing today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're wildly, I mean, hugely talented writing, um, singing, speaking, also newly involved in, in, in film. And I'm like, my goodness. I mean, I read your poetry, like, you know, that that's in the book. And as, as, as also as a writer, I, those things are cathartic for me. It's not, it's not work. It's because it's, it literally helps me to breathe. Um, and, and and so for you, your, your, your gifting and all of the things that, that, I mean, it just seems like you were born with, okay, these are the things that you're going to need for your life. This is what's going to carry you through. And I don't, I don't want to like put that on you, but that's how it felt for me reading your story. But how much of all of your gifting, the, the writing, the speaking, the singing, um, has also, has it been really cathartic? Yeah. Yeah. I feel lucky that I knew what my thing was, which has mostly been music. You know, I think if I were a gardener, like if that were my thing, I just have really been out there digging in the dirt for five years, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and not everyone has had the opportunity to discover their thing. They don't Mm -hmm. always know what that thing is that like grounds them or connects them to themselves. And, and Mm -hmm. I'm lucky that I, I found it at, I guess, a young age. And so with music, especially I experienced catharsis and kind of at different stages, there's the moment of just like creating music where it's just me. And I'm just like banging on the piano and I'm singing and I'm sobbing and it's all moving through me. And like, I've written songs in that space that I would never share or record. Like, I feel like there's a stage of catharsis that is not meant to be shared, right? It's just moving it through. And then as an artist, there's the stage of like, then crafting something. So taking you know, what comes out of when I'm in that kind of emotional space of singing and playing an instrument and thinking like, okay, how do I want to shape this or craft it into something that I would record and, or perform. Um, and then when I'm performing those works, I get to go through kind of another kind of, and at that point, it doesn't feel like catharsis so much, but it's like a, a release that I can have where I'm, I, I, I connect with that story or I connect with that emotion. And by the time I'm performing it, I've gone through some of that like processing work that is messy (laughs) so that I'm, you know, on stage, you know, sharing something that, that makes sense in that, um, on that platform. And by the time I wrote the book, I felt like, I mean, the book was very, was a very meaningful process to, spend time with these stories to make choices about what I wanted to say. Like, this is my story. I'm the one deciding what goes in there, what stays out. Um, And that's really empowering, right? It's a really empowering exercise to say, this is, this is what happened. This is how I see it. I get to tell you in my words. And so in that sense, it was very meaningful. I think, but I think the catharsis happened before I got to the book. Like, I feel like, I still, I felt this kind of itch to still tell these stories in a way I'd been telling these stories through music, but you know, that's three and a half minutes, everything rhymes, you know? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so the book, it's a very different, much more in-depth way of telling these stories. And I was drawn to doing that, but Mm -hmm. I felt like a lot of that processing work had kind of already happened, um, which, which is probably what made it possible for me to do that more in-depth storytelling. So there was like less catharsis when it came to writing the book, because it was more like I was ready to just shape the story at that point. 
and and Amanda and I have talked about this, the, the writing a book from a more healed place is what it sounds like you're saying, you know? Right. From the, the scar, not the wound. That's they exactly say, yes. It. yes, yes, yes. The writing from the scar instead of the wound. And I could definitely, I mean, that so resonated with me. And I think like grief, it, it, you, it's a dismantling, you know, you fall to pieces. We have that expression. I'm in pieces and writing a book. The task is very literally putting pieces together, you know, beginning and middle and end there's structure. It's there's threads that are woven throughout. Like there's, it's kind of a practical task and it, you hope it makes sense. <laughs> and so I couldn't be, I couldn't have put those pieces together of writing a book while I was still falling apart. Like the pieces had to fall. They had to be on the ground. I had to be able to look at them <laughs> yeah. before I could. Yeah, exactly. Put it together in, in some kind of shape. Krista, the, the, when you just said that grief is a dismantling, it is, it is. And, and I wrote recently just on social media, you know, that things are different now. So let them be different. Mm. And when there's a dismantling, let it, you, there's no, you don't have a choice. You have to, Yeah. what's going to fall away is going to fall away. What's going to go away is going to go away. Things are going to be different. Your identity is going to be different. Yeah. Your sense of safety is going to be different. Autonomy is going to be different mm-hmm. for a bit. It's going to be different. And there's so many things that are going to be dismantled. Yep. And so you, you really have to just let it be there's, you know, and then see, okay, what from this, what, what, what do I build from, from, you know, what, what does rebuilding even look like? Mm-hmm. That's the process, but allowing that dismantling to happen and even just, just acknowledging, just accepting it. And that's, that's hard work in and of itself, but it's, it's necessary. Yeah. In this moment of your life, what is giving you hope mm. or what grounds you? It grounds me. It gives me hope. I, the idea of hope is so interesting to me. And for a long time, I felt an aversion to it. <laughs> I think because particularly culturally, I mean, in our, you know, we have this like good vibes only, you know, get better, be better, do better. And for a long time, I was like, I don't think that's available to me. <laughs> so like, where do I fit in if I can't show up in that way? Yeah. And so I think, and even, you know, even the expression, there's always hope. And my answer would say, no, there isn't. Sometimes there isn't. And in denying that we have genuinely hopeless situations only makes things worse, right? Like you're like that. You were just saying that piece of acceptance, like we need to accept that people suffer, that there are shitty things happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sometimes you just need to say, this is awful right? Yeah. That's it. That's all. I mean, and there's sort of a funny trick that happens there though, because I found once I could accept or acknowledge that this feels hopeless, then there was some space to be hopeful in a way. Like I think that act of being seen, feeling heard of acknowledging exactly where you're at is what can help us. Right. And I started to think about hope more in terms of things being different, actually, like, just as you were saying that I was thinking about hope, just as you were saying, like, it's different, it's going to look different than it did before. And we don't know what that will be. And so that kind of then became my definition of hope of like, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what it will be, but it's going to be different than this. And 
that kind of gave me something to hold on to because I think when people were like, you're going to be better, you're going to be fine. Like, don't give up hope. I was like, that's too far down the road for me. (laughs) But if it was like, things will continue to change. I was like, okay, okay. So I feel like being for me, what's grounding sometimes in that when, when I'm having a hard time in particular is like, this will change. There's some, there's an unknown future here still. And that kind of helps me relax and, and figure out what I can do now. What can I do next? You know, and then in like daily ways, music, singing, dancing, my four-year-old daughter (laughs) grounds me enormously focusing on my breath. You know, those tools that we have to just help us find that present moment. I love what you had to say, you know, about sometimes it's there, there is no hope and there's a lot of healing in being able to just name that, to just say, this is, this is where I'm at today is right now. I'm not feeling hopeful. (laughs) I'm not feeling like an optimist because that could be really dangerous. That toxic positivity, you know, that it could really lead into some real serious spiritual bypassing and, and a lot of harm. And so I think it's really beautiful and important for all of us to be able to say, sometimes there is no hope, not feeling it right now. That's okay. No, you know, with no pressure to change it, make it look any different right now. This is where I'm at. And then on other days, um, I remember somebody asking me, you know, what do you, you know, in terms of hope or what do you have faith in today? And I said, I have faith in nothing except for myself. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and just today I'm just going to do the best that I can, whatever that looks like. And sometimes that's sitting on the couch, watching Netflix and just zoning out. Yeah. I have faith in myself that, that I can at least do that. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to use coping skills every day. Yeah. You, you know, you, you don't have to try your best every single day, every second of the day. Sometimes just, just being is also healing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, I, I think it's important for, for people to grieve that, that are grieving, get away from people that are trying to move you into a certain level of healing. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, it's so interesting, right? That the second we can just accept, like, this is where I'm at today is a day of sitting on the couch. It does actually relieve, <laughs> you know, it, it's like the don't suffer your suffering idea, right? Like if you are hurting, adding a layer of like, I should be doing these certain things, or I'm not getting quote unquote better fast enough, or like sitting on the couch all day is a waste of my time or something, but like, that's just adding another layer of suffering to what's already going on. So like, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to free ourselves from that, all of those expectations or judgments. And, um, but yeah, yeah, I'm with you (laughs) like faith in myself. And, and that's so beautiful actually, because I think that if I think about my experiences of faith in myself, that's been hard one, right? Like you have to unlearn a lot of, um, of those external ideas and expectations to be able to say, I have faith in myself. Has your community yeah. strengthened? And you mentioned earlier that, that you've had, you know, community and that's, that's really helped out. Um, but has, has your community strengthened as a result of either your identities, um, or your grief and loss experiences? Mm. Yeah. And when I was talking about sort of like my community carrying me through those experiences, that was like, uh, my friends and family and that immediate circle around me that I had, like in my social circle, um, 
And through these experiences, I have found belonging in other communities. I mean, social media, like it's the worst in some ways, right? And then in, in other ways, it's this incredible tool of connection. And, and I have found, you know, um, other bereaved parents, a community there online of sharing stories and experiences. I have found particularly with disability, um, and even more specifically, like other people with limb difference, um, finding those people online, um, has been really meaningful to me. And as an indigenous person too, I mean, even within the music world that I'm in the kind of smaller indigenous music scene is like really where I like feel love and loved. Um, so, and there's overlap in these communities, of course, as always, but I, I feel like in the ways that I share my experiences, the, you know, on one hand, I want to offer, you know, my songs or my book to people. Um, but on the other hand, it's like, I also get to receive so much in return of feeling like I'm not alone and I feel seen. And, um, so yeah, I've, I've a community is I, um, something I'm really grateful for through all the, all these ways that I have found it, you know, because of your own journey, again, what have you learned about what it means to even, you know, advocate for yourself and advocate for your daughter again, because of the traumas you've experienced and even because of your identities. It's interesting. I, I took into my, gosh, maybe even my thirties or, or late twenties to become aware of my need for like self-advocacy. I'm thinking specifically of the medical system. And so, I mean, I was 11 when I first got bone cancer. And so I was in the medical system from that age and told what to do. You know, this is the test you're having. This is what you have. This is the treatment. I wasn't given a choice. Of course, my mother was, you know, making those informed decisions for me. And then by the time I was an adult, I kind of, I hadn't learned or figured out how to ask questions about my care options or, or if there was something I didn't like to even speak up about it. I felt like I learned as being a kid in the medical system, I learned that I, I, I just was like, oh, I don't get to ask. I don't get to say no, like this is, I just have to do the thing they tell me to do. And it was actually took a physiotherapist who was like, you can decide, you can say, I don't want this. I want options. Are there options that you're not telling me about? Or like, and, and that was specific to me, a prosthetic leg, but I, it kind of opened my eyes to the way I was interacting in all the aspects of my kind of ongoing, you know, long-term care, um, that I was like, Oh, I, I, I kind of grew up into the system in a way that it told me that I don't have a choice. And of course I do. And so learning how to advocate for myself has been noticing that that was my default. <laughs> and, and then of course, as a parent, I, you know, I start to re you start to examine, like, how do I speak up for myself? What am I modeling? How do I look out for my kid in different spaces and in, you know, with different identities and in the ways that, that comes up, I feel like it's something I, yeah, that it, it's ongoing for me learning how to even notice if I feel like something I'm unsure of, or if feel like something that like negative is happening, like for me to even first go, Oh wait, I don't want this. That was like the first thing I'm learning how to do. And then the second thing I'm learning how to do is to speak up. Um, yeah, that's ongoing. So in your book, you, um, include, and I talked about it a little bit earlier, you, you include some of your, your poetry 
And so just out of curiosity, uh, who are some of your favorite poets? I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, in the book, they're, they're lyrics, but I love that you have called it poetry. I think I, I feel like, like I'm not a poet and it's maybe a, it's maybe semantics um, because I write lyrics, although I think some of them are poetic and it was in, deciding to put them in the book because exactly they're written on the page. You could read them as a poem. You're no one is reading them and singing the songs. right? <laughs> um, but I included them at the moments where it felt like I had maybe like that they added to that story, you know, like um, that that's, there was something in the song or in those lyrics that are telling this part of an experience that I, I couldn't express in another way. And so, yeah, but so they're, they're lyrics, but I, I guess they probably do land like poems on the page. Oh man, favorite poets. I, uh, well, even actual, I just met this poet. This is probably her name is Isabella Wang. I'm showing okay. it to you. Of course, people in the it's, and her book is called Pebble Swing. Mm-hmm. I'm loving that book right now. One of the most wonderful things about publishing a book <laughs> It's been getting to like meet so many writers because then you're on, you know, panels or literary festivals. And, and so I met her at, at a, at a writer's festival. I marvel at poets. And again, it's maybe just like my own kind of mental barrier that I'm not a poet. Cause I feel like the, the words I write are set to music. And the idea of writing like that without music is like, terrifies me. <laughs> There is on the last page of the book, I think there's a URL where you, there's a Spotify playlist and there's mm-hmm. like a band camp where you can hear the songs that mm-hmm. the lyric of the lyrics that are in the book. Mm-hmm. But Krista, who or what makes you laugh? Mm, my kid makes me laugh <laughs> every day. My four-year-old Sona getting sent like silly Instagram reels. <laughs> there's a couple people on Instagram, like when I need some lightness, when I need to laugh, I go to, there's one named Vinny Thomas is someone who really cracks me up. Um, Shia Danny is this like Instagram or TikToker that is absurd and wonderful. And I love, I talked to, you know, how the, the, the power of finding community on Instagram, the power of finding like the weird creative things that people do <laughs> also brings like joy into my life. Again, there's so much crap on social media and so much all the trolling and the garbage and the way that people hurt each other there. But then this like this joyful creativity and people who spend time making these just delightful, weird things <laughs> definitely makes me laugh. <laughs> and then who or what inspires you? I'm inspired by right now, other people's creativity. It's been an interesting time. You know, I published this book and I haven't been in really a creation mode since it came out. There's been like a couple little things, but I'm mostly right now, like really invigorated by witnessing and supporting other people who are making things. If that makes sense. I'm part of a writer's group. We meet every month. I was supposed to like share some writing for feedback in like July and I never got around to it, but I feel like I just, when we get together and talk about one person's writing, I feel so excited that people are creating things. So I feel inspired by the, the people in my kind of circles who are creating. Um, I, I, that gives me a lot right now. Thank you so much, Krista, for coming on my podcast and a little bit of time with me. And you're just such a beautiful person and I'm glad to, glad to have met you. So thank you so much. Thank you. And it's so meaningful to be here with you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.